Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast isn't about training. Instead, I'm using it to explore all the ways in which horse people can help to create a healthy, more sustainable environment. Last week, I began a conversation with Marla Foreman. Marla is a veterinarian, a trainer, and a riding instructor. She's also a good friend, so it was fun for us to have an excuse for a visit. I particularly wanted to interview Marla for this podcast because she grew up on a ranch in New Mexico. So she grew up in an environment that was completely different from my early experience with horses. From there, she moved to Washington State, but not to the temperate coastal area. She lived on the other side of the state where rain is scarce, and the amount of land she had was a mere postage stamp compared to the acreage she grew up in in New Mexico. And now she's living on the opposite coast. She's out in Massachusetts near Boston. So she's learned to manage horses in very different climates and very different sizes of pastures. And that's what I wanted to talk to her about. That and the O2 composter that she had in Washington State. That's what we explored in part one of the of this conversation. And it turns out that it doesn't matter where you are living, whether you're living on a huge amount of acres in dry New Mexico or a very small uh, acreage in temperate uh, New England. It really doesn't matter. The concept of pasture rotation is the same. No matter how much rain or how little rain you get or how many acres you have. So we're going to dig down a little deeper, no pun intended, into pasture rotations. And Marla is going to start us off with an experiment she conducted to decide when to turn her horses out. So we'll pick up again where we left off in our previous conversation. When we hear some of the reports on uh, the climate change and what, the, what needs to be done, you think, what difference does it make whether I have a healthy pasture with lots of biodiversity or not. But when you think of the number of horses and the number of us who have, you know, a, whether it's just a couple of acres, you know, with a house on it and a couple of horses, that acreage adds up into significant yeah. numbers. Yeah. And so yeah. the more aware we are of some of these, these options of maintaining horses because I know this was not this was not how I saw pastures being maintained when I was growing up and when I was boarding the horses and so on or traveling to different barns this kind of thinking was absolutely not present but now it's becoming more and more the norm and the more that it is then and the more we model Look, you can have yeah. horses and you can have 
pastures that look decent. Yeah. Uh, and and our horses, knock on wood, are doing really well. They're really healthy. Then the, the number, the more we do that, the more horse people who really begin to think along these lines, the number of acres that are collectively under our care becomes right. significant. Mm -hmm. Maybe not individually. Individually, right. it's not even a drop in the bucket. But collectively, Lots the, of more, right, the more yeah. we think about these things and care about the land. And, you know, it's not a hardship. No, it, it's interesting because it took some work to set up in each place. You know, so each place, you know, whether it's in New Mexico or Washington State or here in Massachusetts, we've had, you have to build the fences to make the paddocks. Right. But once we did, it's less work. Yes. The way we set it up. And, and in Washington, um, having an O2 composter gave yes. you a way of disposing of manure. Yes. So you were running, what, 15 horses? That's a lot. That's a, that's a lot. I mean, to pay, it hold, pay to have it hold off. Yeah. Oh, I had that. That's, you're, you're having to pay to have it hold off. Right. And then you probably were having, were you fertilizing your fields? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a lose-lose economically yes. on both ends. Yes. I don't know. And when you build OG Compost, they talk about how you can sell it. I'm like, sell it. I'm using it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's, that's, yes. Every, every drop of it goes back onto the land. I have a place for it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you're, yeah. you've got a tidy way so that your, your property looks nice. You don't have yes. the, you know, the nasty manure pile. Uh, right. Who's turning into muck uh, some, somewhere? Whether it's whether you have to drive off you know, the yes. um, to, to dump yes. manure or whatever, you don't have that. You've got so you you've got a way of disposing of the manure that actually enhances your pastures, and yeah. um, and so adapting adopting some of these practices, it's absolutely not a hardship. No, the uh, managing your horses so that uh, they've got a laneway, and then all you yes. have to do is go open a gate. Because yeah. you've also been in the situations where you have the long walk out to turn yes. out, yes. which is yes. insane. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and I thought about those things, and it's like, okay, let's see if we can build a, a build a way where we can just open gates. Yes. And so we have. We, I mean, we this up. Um, we built the lane so that, you know, as we put in the strip grazing in the hayfield in the fall, we have a lane so that as we add each strip on, they just go a little further down the lane. Yes. And it, you don't have to, like, beat them down, just open the gate and let them go. Yes. And, and from the, so it's easier for us. There's no leading yeah. them out, leading them back in. And of course, it, so... When my horses are ready to come in, they walk themselves in through the gate. They yes. don't have to wait pacing. They don't pace at the gate. They don't pace at the gate, so you're not destroying okay. them, the, the, uh, the gate. You don't right. have a horse who is stressing because he wants to be in for mm -hmm. whatever reason. 
uh, he just walks himself in and there he is. So it's healthier for the horses. Yes. It's easier for you. Yeah. So that this build, really giving it just that little bit of extra thought before you put the fence on. Um, and we actually um, sacrificed one of the paddocks to turn into a lane so the other group of horses could have room to go yeah. in, their, in their drive. Which really is not sacrificing a paddock. It's well, just I know, repurposing. It was, you know, it was a grazing paddock and we um, set it up so that it is not a grazing paddock yeah. anymore. Um, so just so they would have room to move. Yes. And, you know, they have a lot more room than most horses anyway, but yeah, 30 by 40 feet isn't enough. So we gave them a nice long ring to walk up and down. <laughs> it sounds like they have a really good life. They, are. they do. They have a great life. Yeah. And they're all very happy and comfortable. And yeah. Which is as it should be. Along with. Yeah. Which is as it should be. So, yeah, yeah, and you know, um, we tested the grass a couple of times over the years, and we did like tests like every two hours through the day to see what the sugar did, oh. mostly. And it's really interesting because it peaks about two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, interesting. But we have trees on the west, and so most of the most of our paddocks, actually we have trees sort of in the middle too. So most of the paddocks are in the shade by like four. Okay. And by eight, the sugar is down. Wow, interesting. So, back down. so, so we so can now, turn them so out. So let's, let's go back, evening. let's go back a step. So if somebody wanted to do that, uh, help me visualize how that, what you did. So you went we, out. For a couple of days, we went out it took a couple of days to get all those samples taken. But basically set a timer and every two hours you went out to the paddocks and collected hopefully a fairly um, good sample of what is growing in that paddock. So you took your clippers out and you just cut? Cut off various, all the various kinds of things that we could find that we thought the horses might eat. Okay. And put them in a Ziploc bag and stuck them in the freezer. Okay. Put a date and a time on it, like it in the freezer. And we did that so we had a sample every two hours through the day. Okay. Like six in the morning, six thirty in the morning, down to ten o'clock at night, I think, eleven o'clock at night. And um and so then we just sort of graphed the But sugar. so then uh so then you sent them off to a lab? We sent them off to Equal Analytic. Okay. This is where we send the hay samples yep. them yep. and they sent us back the results. And then we had a like, okay, the sugar is going up in the morning um, yep. and it gets higher than we'd like to have them out by 11 or so. It peaks at around two on these fields. Okay. And then it starts to drop off and by eight or so it's back down to a reasonable level. And so that, that's sort of like, okay, by eight o'clock, we can turn horses out. Yes. <laughs> and we thought about turning them out in the morning, but that's when it's the easiest time for us to take them in the barn, give them their breakfast, and let them be in their stalls for a, few, for a bit. Yeah. And by the time we get them back out, having worked with them, ridden them, trained them, or messed around with them or something, um, it, the sugar's getting pretty high, so yes. we didn't want to turn them out then. 
so we went with the evening. So I've I've had the general rule of thumb I want them in by 10 a.m. Yeah. at the yeah. latest. And, right. And in the fall and the spring when the, it's so nice to be out, they're you know they they want to be out longer. But even so, generally by 10 they're in of their yeah. own accord. Even if I don't ask them to come in, they'll be mm -hmm. in long. They're in long before I start to think, oh, you really need to come off the field now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what a, what a great thing to do. That's a great addition. We got into this discussion and we couldn't decide. And so we just did it. Found out. Yes. <laughs> so it happens to have a group of, of scientists main, yes. maintaining yes. horses. Yes. yes. Um, How do we find out? We go test them. Yes, we get the data. And then we make the, we make an informed decision. Um, yeah, neat, really yeah. neat. Yeah, and then we got our guy who cuts the hay. We asked him to cut it first thing in the morning. Yes, the first year he cut it mid afternoon, and it was really high sugar. Yeah, um, and since then we've got him to he cuts it by eight, and it's just the sugar is really low. Yeah, all these things make a difference. You know, it's the same yeah. field. But when you cut it, it, makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. And since it mattered to us, we asked, and he went, yeah, sure, no problem. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't really matter to him. So I thought about asking this year for that. And then I thought, oh, but with the fields as wet as they are, they might want to wait a little later in the day to let things yeah. dry off a bit. But as it turned out, the field was cut early in the morning. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> It's nice when your your hay person knows knows you and knows your horses because yes. he knows that I have older horses, so he's mm -hmm. he brings me now hay that's that he's picked. Yeah, this will be really good for Alex, so so that's yeah. nice. Which is what you want. <laughs> and yes, because uh, you know you get some of these fields and the horses think, oh, it's not even bedding. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes. We don't want to eat it. Go give it to the goats, and the goats will say, yes. "No, we're not eating that." So <laughs> the horses don't want it. We really don't want it. <laughs> Silly things, goats. Our goats have been good about the hay, but yeah, they're not necessarily very good about some of the stuff growing in their paddock. Yeah. So, anything else that, in terms of maintaining healthy pastures and healthy climates and healthy horses. Yeah, well, one thing I'm going to mention that because I thought it was sort of interesting is that, you know, just just as a sort of an example of the difference. Okay, growing up, we figured that it took about 20 acres to run one cow, which when I was looking it up to see how that adjusted probably 12 acres per horse. Okay, okay. 12 acres, 12 acres. Yes. Yep. Okay. For one horse. Yes. And, you know, then you start looking that up and they're saying, well, you know, we usually consider like 12 acres, 12 horses per acre. <laughs> like, <what>? Yes. <laughs> okay, this is a little different. Yes. <laughs> you know, in Washington, I was running 15 per acre because I could irrigate it, but I wasn't running them all the time. I couldn't have done that with them all out all the time. I could probably have done about five if I had them out most of the time because it was irrigated. But climate makes a difference. A difference, and yeah, yeah. 
for where we grew up in New Mexico, it was very much like feral horses, as far as having lots of room to roam, you know, um, traveling not huge distances, but you know, a reasonable distance to get water. Not a herd of mares and stallions, but a herd of horses that stay together most of the time. And so, what would you say? It gets back to something I asked earlier, because there, there's so much emphasis these days on we want you know, good horse welfare, so we know we want the horses out and walking around, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of happy horses, horse behavior, horse-human interactions, what difference, if any, would you say you see between the horses as you manage them now and the horses that you knew growing up? Ooh. I've never asked you that question. We did less management. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we got them in to ride them or something, we trimmed their feet if they needed it. Um, I think they had better feet just because they traveled a lot more. And of course, um, they're on different ground out in New Mexico versus. Right. And this was pretty much non rocky grass. We had a leased area, two and a half square miles of leased area that we took, had horses on occasionally. Usually we just had a few over there that we were going to use when we needed them to work the cattle over there, move cattle someplace. Um, but it was really rocky and we never even had any trouble switching. We weren't working them hard all the time, but we also never had shoes on any of them. And I think it's harder to keep good feet on horses when they're not moving Yes, as much. And also, I would have said it was pretty uniform ground, but I'm sure there was certainly variation if they came down to the house other places not so much, other watering tanks not so much. But it's interesting because, um, like I said, we didn't shoe them and we just took them from the home ranch and over to the lease, hauled them over there and rode them on the rocks and nobody ever had any trouble. So it's sort of interesting. We have so many with so much foot problems. Yeah, because uh, yeah. you know, that seems to be a fairly, I don't want to say universal, but certainly a very common headache is the foot care. I, to some extent, I think one of the things I got growing up is that, that would horrify most people now, I must say, is that chips are okay. Yes. That's how our horses shortened their feet. They chipped back. And so they were often quite rough and ragged, but they were healthy and sound. Um, and we weren't pretty much inclined to like do a lot of work on it if we didn't need to. So, so you had did. a horse who got a long spot that needed to be trimmed back or something because it was unbalanced. We, you know, cut it off, but mostly we let them do themselves. But you didn't panic if if, if a horse had a little uh, chip coming. You know, I just, I, I always no. chuckle when I've seen the farriers, you know, and the owner is going, his feet are just horrible and they're all chipped up and the farrier is going, no, it's fine. No, no. It'll, it'll look pretty in a moment. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I would say probably very few of ours looked pretty, but they did really well. Yeah. And yeah. I'm assuming that they weren't terribly spooky. Um, no, no. We handled them enough. You know, we had one mare that was pretty reactive, but most, they were all pain. When we got them in, we walked up to them and caught them in the corral, and it was not like a little pin. Looking back on that, it was probably, probably 75 by 100 feet. We just walked up to the horse you wanted and put a halter on it. Put a saddle on and went off and rode into yep, the sunset. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Led them up to the back room, settled them up, and off you went. <laughs> off you went. That's right. It's just sort of how it should be. And they stayed fit. So worry too much about getting them in shape. They were out there roaming all the time. So yeah. Interesting difference. Yes. But yeah. the the bottom line is for most of us, you know, what we have to manage is a postage right. stamp compared to that. We, yes. I, yes. I know people who yes. who live out in uh, New Mexico and moved out to Arizona and so on and they bought five acres. Yeah, uh, because that's what they could afford. Yes. So they're in the same landscape, but they don't have the acreage. Right. And out here, we don't have the acreage. Right. You know, you have what you can afford and what's available. Yeah. And what yeah. you can manage. You know. Uh, and I don't think you can turn them out. Even like my friend Judy doesn't have irrigation in the Tri Cities, yeah. so she doesn't have any grass. For a short period of time, early in the spring, she'll have some cheat grass, which the horses like really well. And it's really nice if they can graze it off really fast because you really don't want it around once it matures. Right. <laughs> it gets in your socks. And the rest of the year, there's pretty much nothing. Sagebrush and rocks. She has one mare, Moon, who is a Mustang, and she can always find something to eat out there. The rest of them tend to go out and wander around. She probably has six or so acres that they get to run around in. And they'll go out and wander around for half an hour, 45 minutes and say, could we come back in and have some food? There's nothing out here. <laughs> she says Moon has never yet done that. She's always found food. <laughs> so then it's maintaining them with hay. Yeah, right. it's maintaining them with hay, but they do have space to move. Yeah. And I think that's figuring out a way to make some space for them to move is often the hardest part. Yeah. And I think for each area and each place, you just figure out the best way you can do it for your setup. And sometimes it takes some different trial and errors. You can talk about you'd like to have a pasture paddock or you'd like to have a, you know, a path, a path that they can walk on or something. But sometimes your space in your area just doesn't work very well that way. Right. In the winter in Washington, I turned mine out in the arena because that was my big dry lot for everybody. Yes. <laughs> And I'd turn them out in there for two or three hours a day at least. Um, nobody was in a stall alone. I mean, a stall, simply a stall. They had a stall and a run because I had some space in the I mean, most of them were outside with 20 by 30 foot pins. So I thought they needed to go in a herd and be turned out. So I picked them all out in the arena. <laughs> and then they're moving. Right. Time, so they had more room. Yeah. And they're moving around because it's a social group and they're. Yes, More, yes, and yeah. around because it's a social group. And actually, I turned them out half at a time because you had all of them out. They moved less ah. because other horses were in the way when they went to move. And they move a lot more if there were slightly fewer horses. Yeah. So I turned them out in two groups so they move a little bit more. So you're you're right because you know I've seen so many different different ways of solving the same question. You know, it's mm -hmm. like training. There's always more than one way to shape every behavior. Right. So the, the, the general idea is that we want to get the horses moving. We want yes. to preserve the pasture. So we don't want the horses out 24-7 for the most part on the pastures because that's too much compaction and they're not grazing. Yes. So 
How do you manage that? How do you get them their social time? How do you get them moving within the constraints of the climate that you're living in, the, the number of acres you have, the number of horses you have, and the time that you have? Yes, yes. Because that, that factors into it as that well. Is, those are basically all the factors. And in my books, I want to be handling them a little bit on a regular basis just to get a good look at them and yes. make sure that they're comfortable with everything. Yes. But at the same time, I want to keep the necessarily ha necessary handling down to a low level just because of time constraints. Yes. I would prefer to spend my time enjoying them and not having to yes. do things to set it up so Be that I spend a lot of time fixing it so they can I can just take care of them and I don't ever get time to play with them because I spend all my time taking care of them. That's right. Because um, there's that yeah. argument of, oh, but you, you shouldn't, you don't want to just open a gate. You want to walk your horse out to, to pasture because right. that's how they learn to lead and to have good manners right. leading, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, yeah, I, I hear that. that. That's good. But what about the day that you're in a great hurry and you've got 20 things that on the schedule because that's just the day and you still have to walk the horse out. You still have to walk the horse in. What a nuisance. Yes. Or you could just open the paddock gate. And the right, right. And, and if I want my horse to lead well, well, I can always lead him. Yes. You know, yes. I can do some training. And I yes. and maybe I can open the gate and lead him out to the middle of his pasture if I want. Yes. You know, there's nothing that and says that up here is that we lead them to the barn. Okay. But if we're in a big rush and we don't have time, nobody comes in. Yeah. They'll just stay outside and get taken care of there. Yes. Yeah. Um, but on a general day, they get led to the barn. They get led back out. They get handled. But there are certain days when things get in a rush, something happens, something comes up, and you don't have time to do them. And we just leave them in the paddocks and yeah. take care of them. You want to make things as easy as possible, mm -hmm. not as hard as possible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's pretty much set up so one person could do them safely so you can push them out and shut the gate so they're not two or three horses fussing around you while you're putting hay in or something so that you can work around in there without them if you want to and so you know one person could do all of it safely without problems with saying this is my so, hay or <laughs> i would say that really what we're talking about is smart design mm -hmm. because a lot of what i see at barns is you think, oh, really, really, that's how you set things up. It's it's so much work day in, day out, that it makes it hard to get the horses in out of the yes. field because you've got 10 horses pushing on the gate. So it's hard to get one of the horse you want through the mm -hmm. gate. You're, you're slogging through mud, you know, whatever it is. And really what we are talking about in all of this, even if we took climate change out of the equation completely, if that was not a factor, right, we would still be setting up, we would be setting up the barn in a very similar way, because what it gives us is horse care that is smart, where we're not wasting oceans of time, you know, leading horses out when you could just open a gate, all of those things that, that are not consuming our time. And we end up and with healthier horses. I would say is that don't get in a rush. It took me years to figure out the best setup in Washington. Yeah. 
I just kept adjusting. I set it up starting out with portable fencing, yep. either like electric and stepping posts or portable panels. Yep. And then I would say, oh, you know, I'd rather have it over here. So I moved it. Yes. Said, hmm, that wasn't quite the right spot either. Let's try it again, <laughs> you know? And because I could move it relatively easily because I hadn't built solid fences, which then there's a lot of incentive not to move it. <laughs> yes. I could just keep moving the fences as I needed to until I got it set up so I could turn them in and out and handle things the way I wanted to. I think that is the most important thing that you've said. People really, 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 really need to hear. Don't be in a rush and start out. You know, I all of my fencing is except in the well, and, and the barnyard is made out of fence panels, so I can reconfigure it and have reconfigured many times. Uh, yes. the, the the interior of the barnyard. Right. You know, you 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 have changing needs because you've got a different horse coming in, a different horse going out. One horse has health issues. It needs a. You can reconfigure it. But this, this, yes. the idea that it's just step-in posts. If I want to make a, if I want to right. change a field, I can easily change the field. So right, uh, and so many times when you look at the fencing configurations, they're stuck with it. You know, we yes. look at some of the configurations and you scratch your head and think, now how could, how could you set this up so that uh, you're not doing all of this extra work or you've you can rest the pastures and it's like, ah, it's going to be so hard because yeah. it's permanent fencing. So I, I think that's really smart, really smart and really you know, important. Still adding gates and adjusting things because, you know, it would be really handy if you could close that off a little easier. Yes. You know, yeah. That gate's not really swung for that. Let's change it up. You know. Yeah. So yeah, we just keep changing it because we find something that works a little better and it's been really nice because you can just, I, I think the tendency is to draw something out and say, oh, this looks really good. Okay, now we're gonna build it. And then you try it out and you realize that your oh, paddock should have been smaller, your paddock should have been bigger, this is not good, this was not a good place for this to be. And, but you put in a lot of time and effort and money into building really good fences and now you, you just can't force yourself to change it yeah because everything here pretty much is electric rope fencing except the perimeter fence it's easy move to it. change yes yeah. yeah yeah just move it just move it <laughs> that's right that's the lane right. to run this set of horses out to the hayfield so we just built a lane across the middle of a paddock yep set it up step in post yeah. and move it change it change oh. gates Put gates where you want them, where you need them, and it works. Yeah. So each weekend in the fall, we went out and spent an hour or so building a new paddock, moving our strip paddock over. Yeah. This year it'll be easier because one, we know better how we're doing it. Yes. And two, we left a few steel posts as supports for the corners, and those will still be there. Yeah. So yeah, each week we spend an hour building a new paddock. Piece of cake. Piece of cake. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Came the end of the year, we spent a couple of hours pulling out all the paddocks and putting them away for the summer. <laughs> Which also means that your fencing stays, it stays fresher. Yes, yes. No, the, you don't have the collapsing of the fence. No, no, no. no. Uh, that 
part of the fence has fallen down and so on because no one has touched it for the last couple of years. Right. I, I leave my fencing up, but I walk it. You know, right. I, I, re, I well, refresh we leave, it. We leave the regular paddocks, but the strip paddocks were in the hay field. And that has to be pulled out to cook the hay field oh, anyway. Right, right. So we just went down and pulled them all out. Right. Come winter. Partly because I think our second good snow, which was when we had to pull the horses off, it got icy and it pulled the rope down and froze it under the ground and was bending the posts over. And so, yes. So you might as well pull it out. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it it's very easy to put up, especially when yeah. there's a couple of people. So it's yeah. no big deal. Yeah. It's really <laughs> funny how, you know, I learned about rotation of pastures and all as a kid. Yes. On a very large scale. Yeah. And then just took it down to smaller and smaller scales. Yeah, because you would think, oh, with all that acreage, you don't even have to think about it. But you do. Yeah. Or you and do. they had it in the past. But when we moved in, it's like, no, we're going to rotate because we'll get a lot better. Why did your family make that choice? Um, I would say because my dad was always looking for a better way to do it. And a way to get more use. And you can see that if you have that whole four square mile space as one space, that the, court, the cattle and horses both will have an area they like better. Yeah. And they'll graze it. And they'll leave other areas they just don't graze. It's, you could, that way you could insist that they graze you know, on that half of the pasture or at this half. Or right, <laughs> right, right. Um, county extension would help pay for it because they were in favor of it. Every time we've like gotten a new place, first thing we've done is cross fence. Because <laughs> yeah. you really were, I mean, that was ahead of its time. To yeah. Do that kind of yeah. rotational grazing, um, yeah. and the mob grazing now that they're that yeah. they're talking about, you know, with the yeah. this really frequent rotation. Yeah. Yeah. We certainly didn't do that, but we did cut it up in pieces and raise the cattle here for a while and then move them to a new paddock and let that a new pasture and let that one grow. Hmm. So I had that in my background. And then um, when I was actually in graduate school, I was boarding at a place where she was setting stuff up and I got her to cross fence and make several places so they could turn horses out in different places also. So I mean you could just you can really see right away how much it helps to be able to move them around. And so then when I'm in Washington and I have four acres space, you know, how can I use it the most effectively? So I knew I would divide it up. So I went to the extent, county extension and said, how long does it take to regrow stuff here? And they said, we usually say it takes 17 or 18 days to regrow pasture. So I took that and said, okay, so I need four paddocks if I'm grazing a week at a time. I need four paddocks so that they can be grazing one and then each one has in that case 21 days yeah. to regrow and what i found was that after about two hours out most of the horses would get full come in doze a while get a drink rest a while and wait lie down and take a nap out in the field yeah. so that sort of became my point that okay when you've been out for two hours everybody comes in yes and if they were getting any grain, that's when they got their grain because that made coming in a lot easier. And I usually had one or two who just never come in. <laughs> eat, eat. Um, but most of them would just, you know, when 
I'd call them, they'd just come running in and go in their paddocks and get their grain. I'd go along and shut the gates. Yeah. Easy. So very easy. You know, when we let the horses tell us what is a pattern yeah. that works for them, right? It's, it's even easier. So I could leave them out long enough to get full, and then they were happy to come in yeah. and get their drinks and, yeah, and uh, get their grain and I'd shut the gates and took very little work on either end, let them out. I went down and opened the gates and yeah. put them back. I put the grain in and shut the gates. And yeah. <laughs> I could put 15 horses out the paddocks so and bring, and you know, and most probably in 10 minutes or less. Yeah. And I could get them in in less than half an hour. Yeah. So, and that includes making up their grain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's and no time at all. Really efficient about it. Yeah. yeah. And we ran them, I usually put them out from April through mid October. Um, irrigation started the third, third weekend in March and ended the third weekend in October. And um, I, they had to have a little bit of time to grow grass after irrigation started. I usually didn't have much grass. So I, actually, I did start putting them out shortly thereafter, but they started out on a little short period. You know? yeah. Everybody went out for 15 minutes. That was a little bit more time consuming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So then I usually had to herd them off the pasture and shut the gate and then sort them out. But you know, after a couple of weeks, they'd be all be on pasture and make it all. Yeah. And the pasture had caught up. Yeah. So what I was looking for was how can I keep them moving, let them graze as much as possible, and keep the past and get the pasture in better and better shape yeah. with as little work as possible on with my as part. work as possible. <laughs> and, and what you discovered is that it can be done. You can have yeah. you can have your cake and eat it too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and like I said, because it was mostly portable, I just kept moving fences until I got them right. And fifteen horses. So tell me again how many acres, 15 horses on? Four acres. Four acres, wow. Because I think some, of the, pasture. some of the boarding situations that I've either had my horses in or gone to, to, to teach, they have, I mean, the horses spend their lives in stalls. Right. And the some of the places I've been, the pastures are, are just, I mean, they're just mud lots. Um, mm -hmm. And to think, you know, 15 horses is a fair number of horses. That's not, yeah. that's not a huge boarding barn, right. um, but that's a, that's a fair number of horses. Mm -hmm. And I've been to a lot of boarding barns that had 15, 20 horses and did not manage to have either the good healthy pastures and also right. did not manage to the horses just lived in their stalls which is an enormous right. amount of work yes yes one of the things and this came from growing up on a ranch i think is that i was determined the horses were going out together yeah most of mine were long-term boarders and so the first week or so they were there, week or two they were there, they didn't go out, but they spent time across the fence from other horses and got acquainted with everybody. And then I would turn them up with a few at a time in the arena and let them get acquainted. But within a couple of weeks of them arriving, I wanted them out with the herd. 
um, and they had enough space that everybody could get away. The goat went out hungry, so what they were mostly interested in doing was eating, yes. not scuffling. And it, you know, I didn't ever have any, I had a couple who never really got very well socialized, but they just hung out on the edge and they did fine. You know, I never had any trouble with them. But because I could turn them all out together, I wasn't. Right, that does, that makes it easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, you, when you're in so the kind of boarding barn yeah. where you, you know, you, you have to, you have singles or pairs, it's much harder. Right, right. I was determined it was going to be that way, so that so was it. So it was. Yeah. Um, and I took the time, you know, I took time to get them used to each other. And I turned them out in what I was pretty sure would be compatible groups. You know, every now and then I'd turn somebody out in the herd and he'd just be by himself. I had one big thoroughbred gelding who supposedly had been on lots of group trail rides and did great, but he did not know how to do with a herd. <laughs> and, you know, he cleared a space around him and everybody else just grazed in the rest of the field and he got this little patch by himself. And, you know, after a month or so, he figured out how to be a herd horse. And I had one Arab mare who just always hung out at the side because she never figured out how to be socialized. Yeah. So what's really interesting about the little Arab mare is that her sister integrated in the herd right away and they were raised together. That is interesting. So this has been really fun. So thank you. Yeah. I'm glad to have the sharing. Thank you for listening. Marla is a great trainer and a great riding instructor. She's one of my Click the Teaches coaches, and she's living not too far from me, just north of Boston. So if you'd like to connect with her, her website is foremanequestrian.com. Hopefully you got some great ideas for your own horses, or a confirmation that what you're doing is very much on the right track. That's often as useful as getting new ideas, knowing that what you're doing is the right thing to be doing. This morning, while I was editing this podcast, I was delighted to see several monarch butterflies investigating the wildflowers in the back borders. I say wildflowers, not weeds, even though some of them are goldenrod, and most people consider those to be weeds. In past years, I would have cut out the goldenrod that's made its way into the flower beds. Now I see it as an important keystone species for the native insects, so it's welcome to bloom in my garden. It's a beautiful flower, and like the smart design that Marla was describing, it doesn't require any care from me. I like that. I've got a busy life, so the less I have to do in the back garden, the happier I am. All I really have to do is change my ideas about what makes a beautiful garden. And I'm, I'm learning. I know how to manage flowers that want to edge out their neighbors, so I'm not worried about letting the goldenrod in. It's not going to take over. And in a way, this is my drop of rain into that bucket that creates environmental change for the better. And this afternoon, the monarch butterflies were telling me that those drops of rain into the bucket were very much appreciated. We can all make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how.